The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today, we have episode 125. The short story at the end of the episode is from 25 Perfect Days plus five more. That story is 23rd District. But first, more importantly, we have a very special guest today from Canada, Kelly Aiello. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you today. Yeah, no, this is super cool. I'd want to talk to you. You're a registered holistic nutritionist and a brain health coach. Um, and I wanted to hear your story. Tell us about what got you into this field and why, what your connection with TBI is. Yeah, of course. So um, first I started my career as a high school math teacher, um, educating about uh, math, teaching people who really didn't want to be there. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm still teaching, but educating people in a very different way. Uh, how I switched careers, what happened was a traumatic brain injury that my husband, Joe, sustained many years ago while he was cycling. So he was out on a training ride. We live in um, a town or city called Kamloops, which is in the mountains in the interior of British Columbia in Canada. And it's very mountainous. And he was heading off to one of the local ski resorts on a training ride one day, got hit by a car. It veered into the uh, bike lane that he was traveling in and he was launched into the air and he pretty much landed on the left side of his head. And um, he was actually wearing a road ID bracelet, which identified him, had his contact information and my contact information on it. And so someone, a bystander at the scene, was able to call me um, and I was able to get down there because it was only about 10 minutes away from our house um, before the paramedics had even taken him, taken him away. So um, I made it to the scene there in time, but he... He sustained um, a very severe traumatic brain injury. He um, had vagal nerve damage. If you're familiar with the vagus nerve, it runs from your spinal cord um, all the way of your brain, all the way down into your gut um, and extends into all of your organs. And because of that, that damage, he was experiencing all kinds of symptoms, everything from migraines to tinnitus, to um, gastrointestinal problems, to heart palpitations, to you name it, he was suffering from it. Um, he was very light and sound sensitive. And by the time he came home from the hospital, he was a completely different person. He was angry. He was irritated. He was short. He had um, no recollection of the accident itself or a lot of the time being in the hospital. Um, like I said, extremely sensitive to all kinds of sounds and um, all he could really do was retreat to our cool dark basement and, and, and hide out there. He wasn't eating, he wasn't drinking, he wasn't wanting to see anybody or do anything. He was just completely different. And all of these other symptoms and problems starting started creeping up and almost every medication that he was prescribed caused more problems and created greater um, added insults to injury, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so um, because of that, 
we kind of realized, okay, this is completely unsustainable. Uh, neither of us can live this way for much longer. And, you know, it took months after the injury or the accident and when it, we kind of decided, okay, we have to do something differently. Medications were not helping. Um, and so we started looking for alternatives. We started looking for what we could do on a more natural front or the natural side in order to, to try to make a difference. What were the things that we could change or control? And one of the important things that we discovered was the fact that the brain is predominantly composed of fat. And so feeding it the right kinds of fat seemed to make a bit of a difference. And so we, we ended up completely upending his diet completely. So he's full-blooded Italian man here, uh, living on bread and pasta, gave that up entirely, and now focused on, you know, fresh foods and fruits and vegetables and high protein and especially high fat. Um, gave, gave up all those carbs, and it started to make a little bit of a difference. And so here I was thinking, well, I can't have a, a hamburger and eat it in a bun when he's sitting there just, you know, eating his, the meat uh, with vegetables. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to give this a whirl. And um, I gave myself a two week challenge. That's what I started off with. No gluten and no sugar. Mm -hmm. Two of the biggest offenders and two of the biggest inflamers around. And so I'm like, all right, two weeks, I can do this. Um, and at the end of that two week period, I actually started noticing some pretty big changes in myself that um, I had, I was a chronic person who suffered with migraines all the time. I had low back pain, um, I had thyroid issues and other things that were going on. And I just thought that was normal. That was just part of life, part of living. And this is who I am. And I'd have to, you know, take this medication for the rest of my life. And that's just the way it was. So I um, actually realized that I felt better. I didn't have headaches anymore. My back pain was less and all of these things were starting to improve for me personally. And with the way that he was also starting to make improvements and feeling a little bit um, better and, and, and just those moments of, uh, of time, the highs in between all of the lows seemed to get a little bit longer and a little bit, a little bit better. And so we were thinking we're, we're onto something and because I started feeling so much better, I actually realized what it felt like to be truly healthy. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to shout that from the rooftops and let everybody know um, and share all of my knowledge and information that I've discovered with everybody else. So I took a course to become a natural nutritionist. And then because brain health was something that was very important, near and dear to my heart, I, um, I took a course through the Amen Clinic to become a brain health professional, um, which I did. And so, yeah, now I've been um, educating people about how to use life-affirming foods to stop yo-yo dieting, to um, actually feel better, have more energy and stamina and vitality and um, manage things like anxiety and depression and um, all those other kinds of things, dealing with traumatic brain injuries and, and whatever else might be going on for them. And that's what I've been doing ever since. That's awesome. And I think 
well, one, it's so much more powerful when someone experiences the change for themselves, like how you're passionate about sharing that you realize what it feels like to be healthy and you want to give that to other people. I think that's amazing. I forgot to mention you have the, it's the nutrition, nutritional nerd podcast, and that's where you're sharing those messages and reaching a lar larger audience too, which is awesome. Um, now, how long, how long was your husband in the hospital and what were you told when he was discharged? Was it just like, good luck? You know, what, how did, how did that go about? Were, did they acknowledge that he was, that he had changes and they did they say if they were going to be permanent or not? Like, or did they just simply just send him home and you had to deal with it? That's an awesome question. So he was in the hospital for almost a week. And um, he, he had actually, they would have kept him longer, but he kind of demanded to go home because he was in a room with three other people. And there was one older lady next to him in, in the bed next to him who always had her television cranked up super loud. There were people screaming in the hallways. The smells were making him more nauseous and he just couldn't handle being in that environment anymore. So he thought, just get me home. I just want to go home. I want to be in my own environment, my own space, and hopefully things will improve. When he was discharged, um, the initial reaction from the doctors and the healthcare professionals was, oh yeah, typically um, about two weeks. Give it about two weeks. By that time, um, things should be improving drastically for you. Um, there, we did meet with a occupational therapist um, who was scheduled to come out to the house and meet with us, see if there were any um, changes or alterations that we needed to make, if we needed a, a safety bar put in the shower for him or different things like that, um, because he was extremely unstable. He had um, BPV um, and constantly dizzy and uh, just, just not able to, to walk. He couldn't walk a straight line. He could hardly stand um, without wobbling over. And so they knew that was something that needed ongoing treatment, um, but hoped again that that would improve. Um, but yeah, the, the message was give it a couple of weeks, you know, worst case, two years. And, and things should be kind of back to normal and, and everything else. So we were kind of thinking, okay, two weeks, he'll be back to work. Everything will be totally fine. And, uh, and that was about it. And that was far from reality. Yeah. yeah. Now, so how much of a difference did the change in diet make for him? And what was the next step to help him along? Because, or did that, did the, the change in diet solve a lot of the problems? It helped tremendously. So up until that point, um, all of the medications, everything, the advice that was given by healthcare professionals, allopathic medicine just made matters worse. Um, he was back in the hospital a couple of times with allergic reactions to certain medications. And so he, his body was just extremely sensitive to everything at that time. Uh, so definitely food was was the first step mm -hmm. towards progress for him and getting in the right nutrients, the right foods for him made a huge difference, but it didn't solve everything. He still struggled every single day. He was still, still battling with all of his symptoms. Um, but those little, those little windows um, would open up more frequently, which was a very positive thing. It was the first time that we actually saw um, some improvements. Other things that he tried, and this was 
um, again, all natural modalities that we researched and, and we tried on our own. Uh, biofeedback was one of them. Um, he got a little Amuse, which is a machine that you straps mm. over to your head and you can sit there and watch a TV screen and try to control a robot going up and down a ladder and um, um, different things like that to try to improve or strengthen your brain waves. He tried um, deep breathing exercises and meditation and yoga and stretching and all of those different things, whatever he was able to do. Um, on any given day at any given time, he tried. And so all of those things started kind of compounding together to, to kind of start taking things to the next level. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, was he always pretty, was he pro proactive? Like, I think a lot of people, they might get into that kind of situation and just kind of give up or just accept it, you know, and not really want to put in the work. But was yeah. that always, is that something that he's kind of always had in him? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's been very self-motivated and self-driven. Mm. Um, and if somebody told him, you can't do this, then he would say, screw you. I'm going to do it. I'm going to prove you wrong. And that's always, that's part of, I think, that Italian blood in him that he just, he, yes, he definitely had that drive to, um, to make change and make improvements. And if he couldn't do, or if other people couldn't help him, then he was going to do it on his own. Mm -hmm. How hard, how hard was it for you both to make the switch with the diet? I, in my chapter on diet, I, I talked briefly about, you know, cutting out all the sugars and what a difference it made for me. It wasn't an easy thing, really. Um, and I think a lot of people struggle with that idea, but I also think it's just incredibly important and probably one of the most important first steps. Like not only is it going to help with some of the symptoms, but then how much better you're going to, all these other things you're doing are going to make a big difference. So is that, is that what you're seeing? Is it gluten and sugar? Is there anything else that uh, other advice you would have with diet uh, for people that are dealing with TBIs? Absolutely. I've got tons. Where do you want me to start? But uh, if we start with just sugar, sugar is toxic to the brain. Mm -hmm. Every time we eat anything that creates a blood sugar spike, our brain finds that toxic. So we know what toxins are. We know the poison label on containers and, and cartons of um, poison specifically, but we know that those things are poison. What we don't realize is that a lot of the food, the chemicals, the additives, the preservatives, the artificial sweeteners and the sugar that we consume are also acting like poisons in the brain. And so one of the very first things to do uh, to start showing or seeing improvement is to remove those things that are the most toxic to the brain. Um, and there's many of them, but sugar is definitely one of them. It is. It can be hard um, for me personally, like I didn't have the, I, the thought or the idea that I, I need to do this for myself to feel better. I had no idea. I just thought it was, it was gonna be an experiment for me, honestly. It was gonna be a two week trial. I'll do it, I'll see what happens and I'll take it from there. And so because I had that finite time frame of, okay, two weeks, I can, anybody can do anything for two weeks. If you put your mind to it, I'm just going to do it. Um, and then at the end of that 
close to the end of that two-week period, I, I was teaching at the time, uh, walked into the staff room close to the end of the school year, and there's always, if, if you're familiar with the staff rooms, there's tons of treats and cookies and cakes, and um, well, there was a graduation cake from the night before, sitting in the staff room table, and you know, at eight o'clock in the morning, um, and I looked at that cake, and I could, I could smell it, I could smell the sugar, I could smell the icing, I could smell the, I knew exactly what it would taste like, but for the very first time in my entire life, I actually didn't want it. And for me, that one moment was defining. It was so empowering to actually be able to not want or desire something sugary, something that I would have otherwise gravitated towards or, or enjoyed in abundance, not been able to stop at one piece. So in the past, I would have been able to say, yeah, I can, I can say no, I can avoid that. I can, I can skip it. You know, I, if I were being really resilient, but, um, but this is the first time that I actually didn't want it. And that change was incredible for me. And then that moment on, it was like, that's it. I am never going to touch sugar again. I never want to have to go through that withdrawal process. I never want to have to experience anything like that again. So um, that's what it took for me. And then I started feeling better and I started realizing, hey, like I actually have energy and I don't need three cups of coffee to get me through the morning and, and I can handle this. So that was, that was an incredible uh, experience for myself. That's awesome. And that this is a good reminder for me to get back into improving because I often like I'll do well for a while, then I'll kind of slack again, especially if I don't feel like the need for it. But I mean, just I mean, it's true. Everyone can benefit. Like if you're eating healthier, if you're eating cleaner, you're going to feel better. And I think that's something we forget or we just I don't know, we just don't want to take the time or or put in that effort to, to kick it. Um, now, did you were you doing research into different supplements as well? So things that he's not getting from food. What, what did you guys add into his regimen? Yeah, um, several different supplements. I think, well, we, he tried everything. He tried a bunch of different uh, farm or um, nutraceuticals, um, paracetam and anaracetam and you name it. He tried all of those different things. Um, but the, the biggest things that seemed to make a difference were things like um, alpha-GPC, um, ginkgo biloba was helpful, fish oil. Fish oil, omega-3 fatty acids, fish oil is probably the biggest game changer for him. As, and similar to that is MCT oil. Mm -hmm. um, and so those things are things that he started adopting and using every single day. And if he didn't, get it on one day then he could tell like it, it was that profound um, for him his symptoms would just be amplified or he would kind of wake up feeling more um, heavy-headed or almost like that drunk feeling um, if he missed his avocado and his mct oil the day before so with those kind of really profound changes and and things that he could notice instantly it just became a no-brainer. It's like, okay, well, this is just the way it is. And these are the things that his body and his brain requires. And so that's what we're going to do. Now, how is he now compared to how he was 
prior to the accident. Is there much of a difference? Does he still have some lingering issues at all? How's that been? He does. He does have uh, some lingering issues. Absolutely. Um, it's pretty much daily. There's something, um, but depending on the day um, and depending on what he does, it's it could be more or less severe. Um, he constantly still has a, a tinnitus. He's always hearing that buzzing in his ear. Um, sometimes gets dizzy, sometimes gets nauseous. He sometimes gets migraines. Um, all of those things are still a part of daily life. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's still pain all the time, but how he manages it and what he can do um, about it, that's, a, that's helpful. And so one, again, another thing that, that he does is he meditates. Every single day he, is, uh, he, he meditates um, and he's up to the point where, you know, he can actually reach a point where during meditation, where he experiences no pain at all, um, which is profound when you've been living with it for, um, for a decade. So yeah. the, again, just things that, that work for him, um, that he's discovered are helpful and, these are the new tools that that he's going to carry with him um, for the rest of his life. Yeah, I think that's uh, that was one important lesson I learned early on. One of my doctors told me, and it was when I was doing the hormone regulation. She's like, "Health is not, uh, you know, you can't just take a pill and be healthy. You know, if you take your vitamins, you're not going to be healthy. Like it's a journey. It's a lifelong journey. You always have to be working on it to improve it. Um, but yeah, it, it's tough when it's something that difficult." The meditation, I think, is huge. Um, I think it's, it might be, well, I think for anyone that's on the go, it's it's hard to find time to meditate. You don't want to just sit there and do nothing. That was always my biggest problem. Like, I don't want to do nothing. I don't want to just sit there. Um, but, you know, going into the science and realizing what it is doing, like how much it is helping in the individuals that I did interview in my book, like that was their lifesaver. You know, meditation was what got them through it, whether it was doing mantras while you know folding the clothes or whatever type of meditation it was like that they needed that to ground them um and i think that's very important now did you guys ever be this had to cause incredible stress for both of you not only for him and the anger of having to deal with this uh, and then maybe guilt for bringing it on to you but i'm sure you had to deal with all kinds of emotions uh being the caretaker, having to take, you know, probably some <laughs> an angry person or anything. Did you, did you guys find it important or did you guys ever go to any kind of counseling? Did you have to deal with that aspect of it? Um, so yes and no. <laughs> yes, there were challenges and difficulties. And yes, you know, when, when Joe came home from the hospital, he was a completely different person. Um, and I did overnight you know, switch from being a wife and a partner to being a caretaker, um, to taking care of not only him, but our dog. So now I was the sole caretaker of this dog and myself always came last. And um, over time of that really started to, to wear on me. Um, and if I, if I was invited out with a friend for drinks, or if I was invited to you know, go to dinner someplace, I would always turn it down um, because that nagging guilt 
of why or how can I have fun? How can I live a normal, quote unquote, normal life if he can't, if he's sitting there staring at the wall? And, and so that was a big, a big weight on my shoulders. Um, we, we never went to counseling. We never had to go that far. Um, but one of the things that, the big thing for me was um, realizing in that instant, the instant he had that accident, how precious and how valuable life is, how it can change in an instant a nanosecond. And I started reprioritizing my life. And I realized what is most important to me. Um, and that was him, right? He's, he's my family. And so there was no thought of leaving. There was no question of ignoring him. There was no, no thought of, of anything like that. It was just now I know what is the most precious and valuable to me and I'm going to protect it and I'm going to help and I'm going to do whatever I can as long as I can. Um, eventually, it kind of took years, uh, but I did go for counseling myself mm-hmm. just, to, just to talk to an unbiased person, just to get things off my chest, just to kind of open up and, and it was extremely valuable for me. And so that's one piece of advice I would probably give any caretaker or anyone in that situation. I know we, we now have, have many people in our circle who have sustained brain injuries um, for various reasons. And I believe every single one of those relationships has ended except one. Mm-hmm. And the strain, the pressure, the the hardship that's put on that spouse is so great that over time they just they just give in they can't handle it they can't do it anymore and if there's one thing that i can say um, is to be patient be gentle be kind recognize that the person who you're sitting beside today is not the same person that you were sitting beside yesterday and that's not a reason enough to throw in the towel, mm-hmm. right? Um, but do get support, find help, find someone who you can trust, who you can talk to, who you can confide in and, um, and take care of yourself. Put, put yourself first from time to time. You don't, if we always put everybody else before ourselves, then we're going to get sick and we're not going to have um, the ability to care for ourselves. And if we're not around, then we can't be of help to anybody else. Yeah, no, those, so, are, yeah. those are all great points. And I, I think that is very important because I, caretakers are often, you know, no one thinks about the caretaker. They're, they're, they're fine. They're just taking care of the other person, not realizing how much they have to deal with and go through. Um, yeah, that could be tough. Yeah. Uh, now, so what, do you have any other advice you would give to someone that thinks that maybe they're dealing with TBI symptoms or, or they're going through something like that? What would be your overall advice to someone like that? Um, yeah, probably I would say start by, by looking at what you put on your fork. <laughs> That's, that's a good place to start. Recognize that 
everything you eat is a choice, right? If you eat something and you feel crappy after, or it gives you that migraine, or it brings on those um, anxiety or depressive symptoms or something like that, then maybe, maybe recognize the fact that what you're eating is not serving you. And um, oftentimes I hear people say, oh, but I've eaten that forever and it's never caused me problems. Well, you know what? We're not the same person we are today as we were five years ago or 10 years ago. And so our bodies are constantly changing. Our cells are constantly changing. And sometimes we need to reevaluate what we, what we eat. Um, so definitely start looking at what you put on your fork. Um, when, I, when I work with people around brain health issues of someone who's dealing with panic attacks or depression or anxiety or, or different things like that. There's kind of a, a general process that we go through. The first thing is to manage or reduce cerebral inflammation. That is number one. And we do that by removing things that are toxic. We kind of talked about a couple of them. Sugar and, and gluten tends to be um, another big one, but also artificial sweeteners. Um, is something else. And so we start by removing those things, adding in the right kinds of healthy fats that can, that the brain loves to thrive on is important. Looking at how to improve blood flow to the brain using certain foods, um, managing blood sugar levels, keeping your blood sugar levels stable. So you're not creating those blood sugar highs and lows that, um, those spikes that, that are damaging to your brain and your cells, trying to reduce free radical damage is important. And then um, just really focusing on nutrient dense, whole real foods, fruits and vegetables and quality um, eggs and pasture raised chickens and grass fed meats and all of the different things um, that good, healthy quality amino acids, proteins that the body uses to repair tissue um, and help with cell turnover and everything else. So all of those things are, are important. Yeah, no, I can't, can't agree more. I think for me, it was looking as finally seeing food as a fuel instead mm -hmm. of a reward. I was always just looking as a reward and like, that's what I get. I could eat whatever I want. I worked hard today and like, not thinking about what it is going to do to us. So I think that is huge. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people, do you have a website that people can go get information on you and where can they also find your podcast? Yeah, uh, I do have a website. It's um, happyhuman.com and that's happy with an I. Um, and I also have an Instagram page or account as the nutritional nerd my podcast is also the nutritional nerd i'm on facebook um, and linkedin under my name kelly aiello and um, yeah people can certainly um, hop onto my website i do have a newsletter um, that i put out a couple of times a month i write various articles and provide information about brain health and neuronutrition um, best foods for improving blood flow, how to reduce inflammation in the brain. I talk about foods, I talk about supplements, I talk about lifestyle uh, tweaks or alterations, different things like that. I have a private practice where I meet with people one-on-one -on -one to help them through these times. So if you are struggling or have had a traumatic brain injury, then I, I start with um, 
kind of figuring out where your baseline is, looking at uh, what your nutritional status might be like, what you might be missing in your diet, what you might be currently doing that may be adding more problems that you might not realize. And then we start making those changes or tweaks and, and um, we can do it over, you know, a couple of sessions or a three month term, which tends to provide the greatest impact uh, and the, the, the best long-term results. That's awesome. Well, I am for sure signing up for your newsletter because <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could use it. Um, yeah. Again, I think I have an overall pretty decent understanding, but I know I'll get a lot of cool tips and I want to start implementing them too. So why not improve it even more? So, nice. well, thank you again so much for coming on. I really appreciate you joining us and uh, yeah, I hope we talk again soon. Perfect. Thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate it. Twenty third district, March thirty first, twenty seventy four. Matt Longley left behind the blue skies over the city of light, and drove into the toxic ash of the districts. He'd been a disciple for less than a month, and wasn't used to passing through the gates without so much as a thermal scan. His years of training were finally paying off, but all the perks could end with this final sweep. The inner blocks loomed ahead, each a crumbling city in itself. Matt drove by the abandoned factories, everything covered in black, the air too thick to see the tide wall, to see where homes once stood. Matt had been instructed to double-check the district sensors for signs of malfunction. Reports said the underground rebellion was still moving undetected. Security needed to be tightened. In two days the preacher and his sons would be making an appearance at the Tide Wall. Matt wasn't the only disciple doing final sweeps, but he was the most ironic choice. On the surface, Matt's years in the way were exemplary. He didn't flinch during the rounds of torture, or when they forced him to strangle his own dog, and when Matt placed his plasma rifle to his father's forehead, as commanded, he would have pulled the trigger. That's what his father had told him to do. No one was above the resistance. No one was above the resistance. Matt's credibility was holding everything together. Without it, the coup would evaporate, and the underground tunnels would be pumped with enough gas to kill every living creature. So when Matt veered off his ordered course, he knew the risks. But this was the last chance he'd get to save the brother he'd only learned of six months ago. Everything would have been so much easier if Isaac's name hadn't been mistakenly attached to one of Matt's evaluations. Unknown family members were usually redacted, but the details were all there. The younger brother who'd been adopted years before Matt had. Isaac Polinar was the only person who shared Matt's blood, the only connection to biological parents neither could remember. Matt couldn't allow Isaac to die, he had to bring him into the underground's inner circle. The east sector was off-limits. Matt stuck to the side streets and angled toward Union Central. He parked his hover car against the stairwell, jumped out, passed the empty elevator shafts, and took the rapid. It zipped straight to the district's hub. Eyes peered from the shadows and doorways, 
Matt kept his hand next to his plasma pistol as he moved quickly through the security arch. He stuck his left wrist out for scanning and pretended to ignore the warm tingling on his skin. How could anyone believe these new scans were safe? A year ago, the line for the direct rail would have wrapped around the corner. Now, there weren't more than a dozen people, the only ones strong enough to venture outside their rooms. A controlling force agent walked the line. Matt cleared his head, calmed his breathing. He flashed his wrist again, even though his disciple uniform gave him clearance to anywhere in the districts. The agent nodded, asked if he could be of any help. Matt said no and continued down the cement hallway. The lights overhead flickered. Blackness, then flashes of light, red scribbles of graffiti. There's some nasty stink down there, the agent called out. I'd watch your boots. The direct train pulled up, every window painted black. Matt waited for it to disappear in the tunnel before he jumped down onto the tracks. His foot splashed in something, but he refused to look to see what it was. Just entered the old number three shaft. Red sensors were spaced every thirty yards, each blinking light encased in glass. Matt checked the first few until he was completely out of the agent's sight. He switched off his GPS tracker, knowing he could blame it on radiation interference if it came up in the brief. The steel grate had rusted more than last time, making it harder to budge, but Matt finally slipped through and flicked on his P7 light. The walls dripped sewage runoff. Some of the stone bricks looked ready to crumble. Isaac's room was on the left. Matt had moved his brother here when they started the sweeps. Broken vials crunched under Matt's boot. The caps were bright orange. Someone had been here recently. Matt unclipped his holster and drew his pistol. The door slid open. Isaac's beard had grown, but it still couldn't cover the patches of pale yellow skin, the high forehead and sloping nose they shared. Isaac's eyes lit up. He clapped Matt on the shoulder, pulled him in. He told Matt it was good to see him. Isaac's pupils seemed to be squeezing out his irises. The kid was only fifteen, a year younger than Matt, but he looked so much older. You thirsty? Isaac asked. He walked over to the plastic jugs lining the floor. Some were filled with piss, and it was taking Isaac too long to figure out which ones were which. We don't have time, Matt said. Come on, you have to get dressed. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I just, uh... Isaac kept staring at the jugs and scratched at the back of his neck. This wasn't the first time Matt had seen someone electro-juiced. Dealers cooked it with radioactive waste. Isaac got hooked after the Great Flood, after his foster parents had been washed out to sea. Matt thought he'd gotten his little brother clean. That was the deal. Matt unzipped his satchel and tossed Isaac the stolen disciple uniform. From the inner lining of his own jacket, Matt pulled out a skin splice. When Isaac finished dressing, Matt took his wrist and applied the splice. Matt studied it from a couple angles. Couldn't tell the splice apart from Isaac's skin. Isaac ran his finger over his new flesh. So mine won't read at all? He scratched his neck again. As long as you don't start picking at it. 
There was another broken vial on the ground. Matt didn't say a word. He just shook his head. I know, I know, I messed up. I didn't mean to. I, uh, just found him. Buried in one of the walls. Someone must have been running from agents or something. I tried to hide them. Isaac's eyes filled with tears. I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't have. You just have no idea what it's like down here. Matt watched his brother try to calm the shakes. Every rational cell of Matt's brain told him to leave Isaac, that electrojuicers could not be trusted. But the same question that had been plaguing Matt for months kept popping up in his head. What if their lives had been reversed? Matt had been adopted by two loving parents. Sure, they'd involved him in a conspiracy plot that would, in all likelihood, get him killed, but it was better than being raised by the fiends who'd fostered Isaac used his body to help meet the rent. And Matt didn't want to lose another family member to the way. I need to know if you can keep it together, Matt said. Fine, fit, perfectly capable. I'm not kidding. Oh, fuck off, I'm fine. Yeah. Matt headed for the rusty grate. I'm sorry, come on, bro. Isaac grabbed Matt's shoulder, spun him back. We're family, you can't leave me. Isaac stopped scratching and looked at Matt with his pleading yellow eyes. Reluctantly, Matt nodded. Isaac ran over and picked up his black backpack. Matt stared at the bag until Isaac slipped it off and unzipped it. Go ahead, look, Isaac said, as though Matt had asked him to pull down his pants and prove he wasn't a girl. Matt glanced in the bag. All he saw were clothes and some water filtration tablets. He told Isaac to stay close. It was dark by the time they got outside. Hardly a soul on the streets, even though curfew wasn't for another hour. Matt told Isaac to get in the hover car. A few minutes later, they were at the bottom of the massive ruins of concrete and dirt, the first district wall. Isaac kept checking the side rearview mirror. Matt shut off the hover car and hoped Isaac was just being paranoid. Nick's coordinates beeped red on Matt's locator. The entrance was just on the other side of the wall. Are you going to be able to keep cool? Matt asked. Of course I am, Isaac said. He couldn't stop looking behind them, though. Kept scratching his neck. Matt yanked the sheet of soggy cardboard and uncovered a hole just wide enough to walk through. Matt kept his light off, ran his fingers along the dirt to guide them. He didn't want to see any flood victims half-buried around them. On the other side, they were greeted with the trees and muck of an overgrown residential zone, long since abandoned. The slick black tide wall loomed over everything, darker than a moonless night. If it hadn't been for the blinking emergency lights and anti-aircraft gun on top, it would have been possible to pretend the wall didn't exist. But the huge cannon slowly swept back and forth, reminding Matt that if he got caught, his death would be the least of his worries. His father and Jordan, the sweet girl who'd been assigned as his live-in, would be publicly executed, their severed heads broadcast all over the globe. Matt told Isaac to hurry up. The locator said their destination was 30 yards northwest, but it wasn't accounting for the steep slopes covered in vine. When they finally arrived, 
All they saw was a lonely oak. Isaac asked if they had the right coordinates. Matt said yes, but he knew the underground was constantly in motion, especially headquarters. He feared they'd been discovered, forced to flee, or worse, destroyed. Isaac tried to kick the oak tree, but his foot went straight through. The underground's holograms were getting better. Matt stepped through the image and knelt. Even though he was taking Isaac into the underground's inner circle, he still covered the code as he punched it in. He lifted the steel hatch, and they climbed down the stairs. Matt's feet hadn't even touched the ground when he heard, Stop right there. Slowly, Matt looked over his shoulder. Nick Fuller blended into the shadows. Black jeans, black jacket, scarf up to his chin. Like Isaac, he was only fifteen, but Nick looked like a man, shaved head, thin goatee. He waved his pistol at Isaac. This your brother? Yeah, Matt said. And you're vouching for him. Of course he fucking vouches for me. Now can I please get down off this damn ladder? Nick lowered the gun, and Isaac hopped off. Nick said he meant no offense, but he had to ask. Isaac chewed the inside of his cheek and shrugged. They followed Nick down the tunnel. Matt had lost his bearings, but they seemed to be heading for the tide wall. Isaac's teeth kept clicking over and over, and Matt told him to stop. He hadn't planned on taking Isaac this far, but he wanted to see if Isaac was going to be a problem. Plus, Nick wasn't known for his patience and hated newbies, especially this late in the game. Isaac's face was white and sweaty as they entered the gutted restaurant. It must have fallen into a sinkhole after the Great Flood. The windows were covered, every door barricaded, tents and sleeping bags along the walls. A bald man in his twenties stood atop the bar, spoke just loud enough that the hundred or more people crowded around had to lean in to hear. There is nowhere else to go, the bald man said. We are literally against the wall. A fat guy grabbed Matt's hand. It sent a burst of electricity up his arm. Everyone was now holding hands. Those of you with ties to the blocks, you're our hope. The only chance we've got. The bald man walked up and down the bar, took a long look at every face. Think of how many friends and family have been taken and killed. How many have died for the way? Matt saw a few of his old friends. Their faces had lost the baby fat, but he recognized everyone. It was like he'd been transported back in time. Growing up, they'd spent endless nights playing revolutionaries in his parents' basement. Now, it was real. Cassie, a thin blonde with dreadlocks and two silver rings dangling from her neck, headed their way. Matt didn't know her from childhood, but wished he had. He talked with Cassie every time he stopped in, but not since he'd been assigned Jordan. Whatever connection he and Cassie might have had appeared long gone. All business, Cassie held out her hand. I need your screens. There was no point in trying to explain how he felt about Jordan, that he didn't know if he could trust her or ever tell her the truth. Matt just handed over his screen, told Isaac to do the same. 
Cassie walked over to the command center and swiped Matt's chip over the inputs. Videos of their trip to the headquarters filled the large monitor on the wall. Isaac asked where the pisser was. Someone shushed him, but a scrawny kid with a face covered in tattoos pointed to a bucket. Don't look at me, Matt whispered. Go around the corner. Isaac pulled his sleeve down over his fingers before grabbing the bucket and walking away. Cassie waved Nick over. She pointed out two strange shadows following Matt's hover car on the way to the tide wall. We can bring down the rulers. We can open the eyes, the bald man said. People will say life's not so bad in the blocks. You've had your races and your drink, but we are sobering up. People all over the world are gathered just like us, under the earth. And soon, we will rise. Cassie enhanced the monitor, and Matt saw the choppers. Nick turned to him for an answer, but Matt hadn't seen anything on the way here. It's got to be a mistake, Matt said. Cassie shook her head. There must be a tracker. The alarm blared, and Nick yelled, Block the doors! Panicked bodies scattered. A few followed orders and jammed furniture in front of every entrance. Matt took off around the corner found Isaac leaning up against the wall. Tears rolled down Isaac's cheeks, stretched into an awful smile. I didn't have a choice. You understand? Why? Matt asked. Because they're always going to win. Matt threw his hand around Isaac's throat. Do they know about me? No, Isaac said. He leaned into Matt's grip. But they will. They'll know all about you. The snake and the bubble. Isaac's eyes widened. Matt didn't have time to turn, just heard the particle buzz and watched as Isaac vaporized. Cassie holstered her pistol, grabbed Matt's arm, and yanked him down the hallway. The world felt like it stopped spinning. Everything sounded a mile away in Matt's ears. Cassie shoved him through the door and into the wall, cracking his head hard. You have to get out of here, Cassie said. Now! Matt tripped, stumbled toward a set of stairs. He turned back and saw Cassie sealing the steel door, only her eyes in the tiny glass window. Muffled particle beams and explosions said agents had breached the command center. Matt pressed his face to the glass and saw Cassie hunched over, cranking a metal wheel. Water sprayed with each turn. The sprays turned to gushing streams until an avalanche of sea came rushing in. Matt had no choice but to run as the water seeped under the door and rose up the stairwell. He threw his shoulder into another hatch and climbed out into the woods. As he slipped into the arriving agents, he cleared his thoughts, pretended he'd just arrived. The underground's inner circle had sacrificed everything so Matt could finish this. But as he pictured his friends floating under the earth, Matt wished he'd never escaped. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network. 